You mind stopping that noise? Yeah, okay, fine! I just like that song. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry. Apologies. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. And this is Tyler Orton. Chasing the brightest peacock who's just too afraid to shine. <laughs> That's beautiful. Poetic, even. It's poetry. It's poetry. It yes, really thank is. Thank you, Cam. And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Picard, episode four in season two, Watcher. Cam, you get the sense that the uh, the writers of the show are, are pr- you know, pretty, pretty pleased with themselves? I, I wasn't going to dive into this um, right off the bat. I was going to try to be nice for a while, but... Okay. It's something I really thought about and maybe it was part of a conversation I wanted to work into a review of this episode. I've been lately listening to Enterprise Incidents, the new Scott Mance podcast, um, where they go through the original series. And I was listening just the other day to an episode on your favorite episode, The Enemy Within. And, um, mm. you know, not yeah. a favorite. <laughs> no, no. no. Yeah. Listeners, Cam is joking. Please, please understand that. <laughs> right. It's actually one of Scott Mance's all-time favorites, which is interesting. But really? Yeah, it really is. And, it, oh, okay. and they do, I think, like an hour and a half or almost two hours on that episode, this deep dive into all these various facets of the episode, all the talking points, bringing up some interesting things I'd never thought about in regards to an episode that I kind of dismissed myself. I'm not a fan of it either. And I walked away going like, wow, like that really made me contemplate this episode. And clearly, no matter what you think of that hour of television, it gives you things to think about. It gives you moments to ponder. I watch these episodes of Picard, and I watched this one this week, Watcher, and there's good stuff in it that we'll talk about, but I walked away from it going like, what do the writers, what do the people making Star Trek now want me to be talking about over the course of a week after an episode of Picard? They want you to be talking about ice and how ice is bad. I don't know if you heard this, Cam, but ice is bad. Um, I think we all knew this, right? And I'm not saying that this is not a story that should be told. You know, it's just... It's a very specific story, and it's a very, um, like, uh, surface-level story. You know, like, we all get, like, the, the, the way that law enforcement uh, down the United States had been treating, like, um, you know, refugees and immigrants, uh, atrocious. But it, it's not as if there's kind of a, a universal theme to pick apart out of what's going on. Uh, there's no—you mentioned it last week. Like, there's no allegory here. It, it's very on-the-nose. This is literally what's happening. And like you said, like I, I don't know how we pick apart this episode in, in kind of the, the, the deep sort of detail that we usually can with, with other series and which you have like these like themes and things that you can place your own sort of, um, not, not biases, but your own experiences onto and take away other um, inferences and interpretations. And this is all just very, yep, ice. It's bad. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But it would be more interesting to me if we were on an alien planet and they had some sort of ice analog there that we could kind of delve into. And then other countries uh, from across, you know, uh, Star Trek's global reach, like audiences there could kind of dive in, dive into the analogs that exist uh, within then. Because, because Canada's, um, the Canadian Border Services uh, Agency, I, I'm messing up the, uh, <laughs> the acronym there, but the CBSA, they've got their own stories and, and horror stories that they've been responsible uh, as well for but I, i'm not sure if this is quite connecting to me at this moment no it's the sort of thing that's very america specific in the story which is fine i don't have a problem with you know films or tv tackling american issues at all i mean as a north american you kind of grow up on that anyway but in terms of like a star trek story you're right like it's a very simplistic approach and i don't know how to do something that's not because i don't think you're gonna have be you know, proposing arguments for ice. Like, that doesn't make any sense to be doing either. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't, but maybe you would, Cam. Like, like that would be really... I mean, Star Trek would definitely be making the news if they did that. Um, That would be a a, a very... (laughs) Star Trek's new direction. 
This is uh, Patrick Stewart's curtain call for his uh, Picard run. Yeah, like that would be uh, horrible. But um, it doesn't... Patrick Stewart, the immigrant, he's pro-ice. Yeah, like it just doesn't give you a lot of nuance to work with. And that's something that I really like in Star Trek where even if it's an episode I don't like, there can be an allegory to talk about is like, what were they trying to do? And maybe it didn't work, but like what are the real world implications of that? You know, how do they lend themselves to a real world situation? Things like that are interesting. With Ice, I'm like, okay. I mean, I've seen the sorts of things in other movies. And what I like about Star Trek is it can do things that other movies and TV can't do. And it's not doing that. Yeah, it doesn't seem as if the show's kind of lost a step by going back into our time. You know, I I know it's two years in the future, (laughs) but it's... (sighs) It's not as if we're kind of exploring these more universal themes. It's what it's really doing. Instead of commenting on the world as we know it by exploring what's going on in the future, it's literally just commenting on the world as we know it, and that's far less engaging to me. And honestly, there's other series that have done it so much better. If I'm thinking about corrupt law enforcement, you know, you can look at something like um, The Shield or The Wire. If I'm looking at, um, uh, you know, homeless issues, um, you know, drug addiction, inequities, you know, maybe I'll just go back to The Wire again, for example. And, and it did it 10 times better, where this seems like almost like an NBC, you know, 10 p.m. drama where they want to go for like an Emmy that one year. And so they're going to do a very special episode of L.A. Law or something. Yeah. And, you know, even like an episode like Past Tense, which was touching on homelessness in a way that was maybe and I'm talking about the DS9 uh, two-parter, of course, but like maybe it's touching on it in a way that is more on the nose than, you know, your standard Star Trek story might but there was still things to mine from that and to explore, whereas here, because it was kind of portraying elements of it as, you know, just very simplistic in terms of, you know, the individuals that Rios was encountering and what have you, like it wasn't fully fleshed out characters. It doesn't even give you a lot to talk about in that regard. And the other thing that's going on right now is uh, the last two episodes, it's a lot, been a lot of like kind of set up the plot, set up the plot, you know, and whereas you watch something like Past Tense, Parts 1 and 2, you've got the plot going. You've got the character beats going. Like there's, um, it almost feels like an episode like that doesn't give you um, much time to like breathe, even though there's a, a lot of just great beats that you sit with. Whereas this one, again, it seems as if they're stretching things out. And I, I, I just, my fear is after we got to the end of this episode, Cam, I'm like, oh. We're going to be spending a lot more time in L.A. than I had hoped for. Like, I think you and I were hoping that we'd only be doing like a three-episode arc in this timeline. It seems after that whole Watcher kind of uh, reveal, whatever we're supposed to take away from Laris being, I don't know, some sort of, or, or maybe Laris's body, who knows, being some sort of analog there. It seems as if we've got another couple episodes left, and I that that's kind of what has me fearful. And like, you do what you do in past tense over two episodes, maybe it gets stretched over like six episodes in Star Trek Picard. And I'm, uh, I that that irks me. Well, it's the table setting is really what I was alluding to in the introduction there, where I just said like, what do they want us to even talk about over the course of a week? Because all you can really do is try to guess oh, what's going to happen next. In which the next episode, then we'll just resolve that very quickly, which isn't a particularly interesting or deep conversation it just is about guessing games which isn't that fun um but you also i was going to say in terms of what you're saying about um how much time on earth you also have the establishment at the very end there in that kind of bizarre scene with q that he is apparently unable to use his you know his skills and could be trapped on earth as well so we could have q bouncing around the 20 uh 24 for a while as well he's finally a real boy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm all down for the Pinocchio narrative. We had one with uh, Data on um, Star Trek Next Generation that was well-worn, so why not do a Q1 as well? Yeah, I, I guess I'm, just after this episode, I'm feeling underwhelmed by the drips and drops of story and plot that we're getting. Even though it's intermixed with some good character stuff that I'm liking, it's just... The, the character stuff isn't overcoming what I find to be an otherwise unengaging story. After I think, you know... It kind of felt a little exciting, those first two episodes. I was, you know, What it is, though, 
you know, they keep saying, like, we're making a 10-hour movie, and we keep complaining about that. And I figured out kind of the best way to describe it. Like, pretend you're eating, like, a seven-layer dip, you know. But instead of getting to go all in and reaching down to the very bottom and getting, like, all seven layers on one nacho, you're only allowed to finish one layer at a time. And then after you finish that one layer, well, you get to pick up another chip, and then you have to finish the second layer and so on and so forth, until maybe after all those seven layers are finished entirely, well, maybe in a month or so you'll feel like going back and having that dip again, but then you can finally take the full seven layers all at once. And that's just kind of what it feels like we're doing right now. And it's just, it, it, it doesn't make for satisfying storytelling if you have to absorb everything holistically as a quote-unquote 10-hour movie. I think it's um, TV writers that don't understand the strength of this medium. And then they often say that, you know, if you write for TV, you rarely have time to watch TV, but it, I don't know, the, the, the folks writing the animated series, they've seemingly figured out how to crack the code of showcasing episodic adventures that can be clearly delineated while also trying things that work within a ongoing arc. And, and that's what I'm getting frustrated with when it comes to, say, Discovery and Picard right now. And an episode like this... I... It feels like there's a lot of filler going on here. When I'm watching, like, Raffi and Seven bomb around in a police car for a while, I'm like, I remember there was a quote I heard. It was another podcast. I think it was the franchise podcast where they referred to car chases as the most expensive filler known to man. And, like, <laughs> that's kind of what I feel like with a sequence like this where I'm like, okay, I get it. It's fun to watch these two actors rip around in a car, I guess. But at the same time, it feels like you're padding an episode out because this one was, I think, 45 minutes. And that's with a two-minute, you know, last time on opener and then also, you know, a couple minutes of credits. So it kind of feels like this probably could have been combined with another episode, you know, half in the previous episode and maybe half in the next one or something. It didn't feel like it was really pushing the needle much in terms of establishing something grand enough that it deserved its own hour. Other than, I guess, like, they, I guess they want to build it around, like, Young Guinan meeting Picard, I guess. Yeah. I, I want to get into that in just a minute, but I, I totally agree with you with the car chase sequence where I, I there's nothing more unengaging, I, I find, in, in television than watching, like, a really pedestrian car chase. You know, I like the dynamic of Rafi and Seven. Who knew that uh, Seven was such a people person at this <laughs> point? But, you know, it's, like you said, it just feels like they're, they're padding things out. They're looking for things for Seven and Rafi to do. And to me, that that's not where I, I think like good drama comes from, you know. And I honestly, if you found this car chase to be exciting, I mean that that's fine. But you kind of figured how it was going to end, you know. Or unless they wanted to put Raffi and Seven in jail and repeat the Rio storyline, but I didn't think that they're going to do that. So it, it's just when you can kind of predict what's going to happen on a TV series. That's what kind of bugs me. Although the the one thing that I wasn't expecting is when they had that throwback to the the punk on the bus in the Star Trek for the voyage home, I was like, uh Oh, here comes some real on the nose fan service. I can predict where that's going. And when they told him to turn the music down, he's like, oh, okay. You know, like I was like, okay, I was not expecting that. I, I still didn't find it like hilarious, but at least it made me uh, second guess what my assumption was going to be about that sequence. Yeah. I mean, it's an alternate, uh, you know, timeline. I'm totally down for just having a sequence like that. It, it's the sort of like Easter egg that if you are a casual viewer, you just go, okay, like that scene was what it was. I That was a maybe funny moment or something. But if you're a fan, you can appreciate that they've got a cameo of the original actor coming back to play that punk on the bus. So that worked for me. I, I wasn't scratching my head about that one at all. Yeah. Um. Look, uh, I, I know we've been kind of dragging on the episode for the last, you know, 10 or so minutes, but uh, you, you brought up the guidance stuff. I, you know, I, I don't want to bury the lead. You know, that was kind of a, a big reveal here is we get young Guinan. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how that works exactly. I'm going to rationalize it because, of course, we saw her in Time's Arrow hanging out with Data. Do you recall if she actually met Picard and company in that uh, two-parter or was it only Data that she met? I, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Maybe I should have checked uh, before we started recording, but we literally just uh, finished the episode uh, right before we hit record. I believe she did, yes. Um, and this is, I believe, a conversation that's been raging online since this episode aired. And I'm wondering if, I think the argument for this still working is that the Confederation timeline has changed things so that, like, the events of Time's Arrow may not have happened. 
So then, if that's the case, doesn't it kind of take the air out of the tension that they're trying to build by, like, we only have three days left until we can uh, avert some catastrophic event that will change things forever? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. So I don't quite get it. I, 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 they surely are aware of Guinan's appearance in Time's Arrow. I suspect they'll explain it somehow, but it looks as if Guinan's gone at this point, uh, at least this era of Guinan. Um, her appearance being young, I can rationalize it in my head. You know, uh, you know, we saw Whoopi Goldberg in like San Francisco 150 years ago. I, she said, like, yeah, Elorians, we choose if we want to, like, look old. So maybe in my head, I'm like, okay, well, maybe they can also choose when to look young again. You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to rationalize it. it. It was, it threw me for a loop because the Guinan that we met in the year 2024 did not feel like she was capturing the spirit of Guinan that we know. And that goes for the Guinan of the uh, 19th century as well. It felt like they wanted to have a story where Picard became more of the wise mentor to a younger, angrier Guinan. Um, and uh, it felt like often, you know, just a commentary on what's going on right now in society. You could have a Guinan who's yeah. fed up with humanity and how Picard is encouraging her and saying, look, change doesn't happen right now. It's more of just a message to, you know, fandom, really, about just the state of the world right now, that, look, change is going to come, but it's not going to happen as quickly as you'd like. And they made Guinan the character that he could have those conversations with. So, okay. I mean, Guinan spent a lot of time on TNG having talks, not just with Picard, but other characters as well, kind of using her, you know, worldly wisdom to kind of help them along. So it's interesting to put Picard in that role. Um, I don't know that I have a big issue with it. I'm just not sure this episode was executed to the level it could have been to make that sort of um, story just like have you really singing when it's over, like really feeling kind of the profundity of that sort of um, relationship, you know, forming on this episode. They, they tried to go big at the very end when Picard was saying, Guinan, don't leave Earth just yet. There's so much for it to accomplish and to grow. I'm like, yeah, Guinan, stick around. There's going to be the third world war in just a few years. You can get nuked. <laughs> Yeah, uh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did allude to it last week with regards to the whole Watcher identity. Um, I was kind of spoiled by accident. And this is because, you know, there, there's a uh, another podcaster who was in the know of them casting a young Guinan. And uh, the, the guy should know better to just kind of keep his trap shut because I would otherwise not have been aware of this revelation. So... When Picard beams into Forward Avenue, I immediately was like, yeah, that's what I figured was going to happen. Um, I, I figured maybe she'd be the Watcher, but now we have some other Watcher in the form of Loris. I I guess it's not Loris. If it's actually Loris played a Jat Vash long con on Picard by really trying to get her or get him to like uh, fall under her spell. I mean, like, wow, that, that that's something there. But um, I don't know. Any, like, you and I are not really kind of the, the folks that are the Reddit detectives that want to like spout out theories based on this or that. We're, we're more about taking in kind of the, the, the themes and the, and the story structure and, and all the holistic way. But where do you think they're going with this whole Watcher plot line here? Do you think it's going to be something that ties into like Star Trek mythos or is it going to be something new? I think it could be something new. Um, her ability to control people, you know, where their eyes were like glazed over and interacting with Picard, which is something I think I've seen in like some, you know, horror movies and, you know, thrillers dealing with um, like uh, um, psychic people. Um, I, I think that could be really interesting. I'm curious if it could be when you're doing a season that features Q and Alorians, it might be interesting to establish another kind of all powerful Star Trek entity that could kind of be in conversation with those two species. Um, I, I don't, the reveal though, I was going to say, because during the week, I suddenly had this sinking feeling because you had teased last week that, um, um, that you'd think you'd been, you thought you'd been spoiled on the identity of the watcher. And I was thinking about it at work and I suddenly got this like sinking feeling of, Oh no, I think it might be Giorgio. Cause the, <laughs> awkward setup of Giorgio's exit from Discovery, you know, where she like was going to travel through time, 
I was like, okay. And then when I'm watching this episode and they're like, oh, she's like really harsh. She'll like, you know, rip your eyelids off. I'm like, oh my God. And that's nothing against Michelle Yeoh, but it's just like, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And so when it wasn't her, I was like, oh, well, okay. But it was kind of deflating. At the same time, you're like, well, I guess it makes sense that it's the actor in the opening credits who hasn't been prominently featured in the uh, last couple episodes. I don't know what this could be, though. I don't know. What What do you think in terms of, um, could this be a new species that we're going to f- explore for a few episodes? Yeah, it's Species 10C, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what? Bring back the George O idea. I'll take that over Species 10C. Yeah, well, look, I, uh, people think I, I, I might be going a little bit out there, but I, I'm using a, like cinematic shorthand and what's often alluded to how uh, uh, storytellers in, in cinema try to do things. But um so we had you bring up Giorgio. The last time we saw her was going into the Guardian of uh, Forever, right? And this had you know a bit of a different effect, but something somewhat similar to that Guardian of Forever effect when we saw Loris bring Picard in there. And immediately afterward, it cuts to black. And the next thing we see after cutting to black is uh, somebody reading the L.A. Times with like headlines about space travel, blah blah blah. And it got me thinking about the last time we saw Guardian Forever, where the uh, the fella there, the, the um, personification, had been reading like newspapers, and uh, there's all those headlines there. And so it kind of got me thinking: is it related to that somehow? Which maybe that ties into Giorgio. Like I just like the whole Lars embodiment. I don't get. I guess uh, the Watcher is supposed to be uh, just taking a familiar form that Picard would recognize. I. You could have gone with, I don't know, Beverly or, or, or somebody else. But you also wonder, like, why is Orla Brady in the main credits of episode one only for her to disappear uh, for a couple episodes after that? Like, I, I'm assuming that this personification of the Watcher is, or a Watcher is kind of here to stay for a little bit. I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's it's a little baffling. I hope it's some species we've never encountered before. I, I want them to do new things and, and create different sorts of alien life. Do you think it could be something like the prophets on DS9, which, you know, used famously just actors from the show because, you know, saves money. Um, but I thought it was very effective. And do you think that could be what they're just going to go for here? It'll be naked burial, um <laughs> when Picard <laughs> gets into the other side of the portal, right? If he'd been the watcher, it would have been amazing. <laughs> But he's still on his deathbed uh, from the episode uh, Life Support, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess so. It's like you said, it's kind of economical. We know that uh, you know, Loris and Picard have good chemistry. It'll be fun to see them go toe to toe. I, I had fun kind of seeing like the Agnes and Borg Queen dynamic play out. I, I, I was wondering if it was going to get a little tedious, but. I do like how Agnes isn't being a complete dolt about it. You know, she's being very wary of the Borg Queen. And I like how the Borg Queen is saying stuff like, okay, if you just, if I said to you, yeah, trust me, then that would give you reason not to trust me. I'm just putting my cards on the table here. And I appreciate that there's, you know, I hate it when characters are stupid for the sake of plots. And I like it when characters can give things at, at, at face value. Like, it's much more satisfying to me. And there's also a little bit of a, you know, give in to the dark side kind of thing with the Borg Queen, where even though she doesn't have any, uh, you know, legs, she's incredibly dangerous. And the way she can just kind of seductively, you know, pose these, um, you know, arguments and sort of these um, manipulative tactics on Agnes is just really interesting. And I think, you know, that uh, the two actresses are doing a fantastic job in building that relationship. And I'm just hoping it goes somewhere interesting and that the board queen really pays off because I don't know if the whole focus of the uh, you know season is just to use her to power the ship and then just deal with her being a problem and then drop her off when they get back. Like, that's not compelling. I'm hoping they're going to go somewhere interesting. And given Agnes's specialty in cybernetics, this is just like, a, I think, a natural pairing and a natural way to use her on the show because it's someone who's just fascinated by you know an artificial life form and so like the board queen promises something that would be very tempting to her yeah and look uh it was fun to kind of see her subconscious mind give little clues you know with the number 15 uh, i guess what it did establish is that uh the 
uh, crew of La Serena ended up, I, I guess, uh, undershooting Defiant and company with regards to past tense by about uh, six months, you know, when the before the Gabriel Bell riots were going to begin. So we're not going to have any crossover there. But they did make reference to a sanctuary district, uh, which we saw in San Francisco in, uh, you know, uh, past tense, parts one and two. And a sanctuary district in this case would be near the uh, the U.S.-Mexican border. So you got a bit of a shout out there. But I don't know. It's just when, when they keep setting up all these kind of external trappings to move the plot along, or at least give characters things to do, like Seven and Rafi have to stop a bus before Rios is taken to detention. I'm just like, not really interesting to me. It, it, it's... it's it, uh, underwhelming uh, is putting it mildly yeah and uh you know it's a case where if they can just resolve it in the one episode great but i feel like we're going to explore this a little more going forward um i would have preferred they built one really solid episode and just have kind of teasers on the front and back connecting it to whatever's going to happen you know next week and then in the, in the past week but it, it just feels like it's a little messy in that regard where this episode didn't feel as cohesive as some of the others have even though it is a serialized story yeah it just goes back to that 10-hour movie problem that i i don't think the writers want to back down from i, I think they are really satisfied with what they're trying to do from a uh, holistic storytelling perspective which look when i went back and watched picard season one it, it was far easier to watch that way because i just i, I wouldn't like pick every episode apart the same way that I would watching it week to week. And I'm sure if I just binge watch season two Picard just like that, then an episode like this, which I think you and I both agree is kind of like mediocre. Um, I, I'm sure yeah, this one, it's fine. It's fine. It's it, like, well, there was nothing terrible about it, but there wasn't anything particularly thrilling. I mean, there's some cool character moments, but I don't know. I, I can say I was underwhelmed and you know, that, that's fine. But look, an episode like this, if I was watching it, Leon, like, um, I don't know, the course of a weekend, I'm sure this would fly by, go on to the next one just to be curious about what the Watcher is or the Constitution or how Lars is in there. And I just, I don't know, I, it, it's not working for me in this fashion, but what are we going to do, Cam? We've got another season of this, a season and a half, I should say, and we are Star Trek podcast, so we will be watching it week to week. I just don't think that the show works so well as a week to week series. No, and I do think our rewatch episodes um, will be interesting when we uh, have our seasons two and three revisited later down the road. And then probably we'll do an episode as well when Picard is wrapped and done, looking back on you know the final journey of Picard on TV and what that all meant. So I think in that regard, these stories will be interesting. But in terms of a week to week, it can be a struggle if they're not giving you a whole lot to work with. There was a couple other things I um, had noted on this one. Um, just a small one. Um, interesting, impractical Joker's cameo in this episode. Oh, I missed that. Uh, what was it? Yes, uh, Brian Quinn from Impractical Jokers played Dale, the man who came to pick up Guinan's dog. Oh, I totally did not pick up on that. Yeah, I was like, what the hell? Because I've listened to him on the Tell Him Steve Dave podcast for like 10 years, something like that. And he, I know he's not like a big Star Trek fan at all, so I'm guessing he just had a friend on the production or something like that. Um, but yeah, I definitely kind of sat forward and was like, eh? That's weird. But Because I remember like on Impractical Jokers, it's like Joe Gatto is more of the Star Trek fan. Like he's the one wearing like the shirts and everything. Yeah, Brian Quinn's much more of um, comic books and Star Wars and Ghostbusters kind of guy. Not so much yeah. a Star Trek kind of guy. Um, but, I mean, it was kind of funny to see. Um, something that really irked me with this episode, very small part of it, so it doesn't take away a lot from the grander whole, but this whole stretching out and teasing of Picard's mommy trauma oh, yeah. is driving me nuts. It's the sort of device that I think the first time I became really aggravated with it would be the movie Batman Forever. Everyone knows Batman's origin. Um, it's well-worn. We all know it. And I remember that movie teasing out or the, over the course of two hours, the Red Book. What does the Red Book mean? Bruce can't remember the Red Book. And then at the end, you find out, oh, it's his dad's diary. Like, whatever. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's like we understand the backstory of Picard. We've watched a lot of Star Trek. So they basically retrofitted or, you know, 
basically invented this tortured backstory, you know, element that they can tease out, have Picard constantly remember it, not talk about it to anyone, but we're supposed to sit there and be like, what happened? What happened? And whatever it was, it really is not going to be of massive significance because we know the journey that character's been on for the last several decades of his life, and it clearly didn't mess him up too much there. Well, it's you keep building things up, building things up, and then the problem with that is when you're doing that over the course of an entire season, you're raising the stakes for something that might end up when you get to the end of it, like uh, a little bit less than exhilarating to see. You, you know, let's say this: what if you you stretched out the entire mystery of Mariner's mom in season one? Uh, Star Trek Lower Decks and you just gave little mysterious little hints that there's something in Mariner's past that she just can't talk about and if you do that you did that over the course of the first episode and it was great it was a great revelation and I was like okay that gives me insights into what this dynamic is going to be like if you stretch it over 10 episodes and you finally get to the end and they're like okay great Captain Freeman is Mariner's mom okay whatever that was the big mystery of the season it just it, it it inevitably becomes like um, just a, a disappointment, and the same thing is going here with Picard's mom. Like you're you're kind of stretching it out, stretching it out. It's like you said, Camet. Like if it was kind of the 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 key to his personality, I, you figured it would have come up before this. And I realize that we're we're trying to go into kind of a deeper version of Picard, where he was more this kind of stoic ice man. Uh, the next generation and you know Jean-Luc or I should say Patrick Stewart would not have agreed if he was just going to play the same character but I don't know to, to me this just isn't satisfying storytelling or at least it's not done well enough for them to justify how they're doing it no and I think there's something genuinely compelling with what they were setting up at the start of the season of a Picard who was scared to you know fall in love or you know open up a new avenue in his life I think that's interesting him like delving over memories as a child it's like like this is not particularly interesting material and as you said like if it was as traumatic as they are building up to be you're telling me this wasn't going through his head at points throughout tng or <laughs> when he's hanging out in insurrection or, or looking through his family um album and generations yeah, no kidding. Like, if anything, he should be having traumatic flashbacks to, like, the brother and, um, you know, nephew he lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, I don't know. Um, what do you think? Okay, I, I kept thinking about his explanation about why the vineyard had been abandoned for almost 100 years. He's just like, yeah, the uh, Picard family went out to England uh, after the Second World War. And then I have like... Yeah, they must have been thinking, who needs a palatial estate when we've got a, a, a house in Liverpool to like, cram into? A flat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know, maybe they're really into the BBC radio plays at the time and, and they knew that they couldn't get the broadcast um, in like the gorgeous uh, uh, vineyards of southern France or something. Like, I, I don't know. But um, um, I don't know. But it's just, it's, it's those weird little... Um, nuggets that they're delivering, I'm just like, huh, how much thought did they put into that? Well, like, they've hand-waved away Patrick Stewart's accent on the show for, you know, a handful of times on TNG as to why he doesn't have a French accent. It's like, that's fine. Guys, you don't need to dig into this more. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> no. Cam, Cam, um, it's, it's funny. You have a, uh, you, you speak like a, an Englishman right now because uh, generations ago you, you had uh, uh, ancestors that were from there, right? That is correct. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's not how it works, people. Like, <laughs> like seriously. Meanwhile, his brother had a French accent. Robert had a French accent. I want them to do a deep dive on that. <laughs> what was the separation just, between Robert I, and Picard? I don't need them to dive into it. Do you know what it is? No. Like, it's very easy. Like, you, you go to uh, Europe, a lot of uh, English speakers in Europe, they have English accents because they had English um, as in born in English uh, tutors that taught them the language, you know, whereas you come to North America, a lot of those folks will have, you know, more of those Canadian or American accents if they're, you know, ESL. It's because, you know, they were taught by um, folks that are from here. That It's easy for me to rationalize in my head. I don't need them to be like giving these little nuggets uh, as they did in this one. And I always had the attitude, well, it's the 24th century. 
I don't know how, like, the lines are anymore for, like, accents yeah. and all that sort of thing. Like, it could be anything. Like, for all I know, it's just formed into, like, you know, like, the country lines are gone. And I don't know. People intermingle. Accents are all over the place. Who cares? Yeah. Um. So with regards to this, like, alt timeline, it's something I kept meaning to bring up over the, the last uh, couple weeks, though. It's like, we, well, A... We we figured that the uh, Discovery crew would be successful with uh, saving um, you know humanity once again you know uh, that that goes uh, without saying but with regards to the timeline um, knowing that the Discovery crew is still in kind of the prime timeline or this non altered timeline it, it kind of makes me think that uh, Picard and company will be successful in staving off whatever catastrophic event will create this uh, confederation of planets. Well, that's why this sort of twist or not so much twist but like setting of stakes doesn't work because we know they'll resolve it like it just wouldn't even make sense for them not to and that's why i think like the better time travel stories are things where you know you go back to like back to the future and yeah i don't think marty mcfly's gonna be wiped out but you can see how he can change the reality of his family in the future like those sorts of stakes are interesting to me whereas here when it's you know it's going to turn into a fascist alternate timeline I doubt it. I seriously doubt the future of Kurtzman Trek is set in the fascist future. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, especially considering we saw the, the, the those three episodes of Discovery that were running concurrently. I'm just like, yep, looks like Picard and Company figured it all out. And I, I guess that's one drawback of having Star Trek on at, uh, you know, twice a week again. Um, which you, I, I didn't I didn't really get to talk about it, uh, you know, the last few weeks. But I should have brought it up, though. But um you know, I, I can go back to my days, you know, watching, you know, Voyager on Wednesdays, and then I'd have Deep Space Nine on Saturdays. And it just kind of felt like uh, Voyager, even though they were concurrent in the timeline, um, Voyager was on the other side of the galaxy. So you knew that things weren't really going to destroy whatever was going on uh, on Deep Space Nine. So the stakes were existing there uh, on, on both series, and things wouldn't really be interfered with, which I, I, th I thought worked for me anyways as a viewer. But um, I don't know, it was... It was busy for us as podcasters trying to do um to <laughs> uh watch multiple episodes and then podcast about them uh as we would any given week yeah like and imagine if on you know when they had voyager and ds9 at the same time that the ds9 station was somewhere that like voyager flew past every week yeah I know. And you would have like the invasion of, you know, the invasion arc at uh you know that kicks off at the end of season 5 ds9 and imagine if, like, Voyager, everything was normal when they were just swinging by that station. You'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, clearly, the threat to the station is going to be very limited. And I think that's one of the genius elements of DS9 is, was, was that, like, you never knew what could happen because other shows aren't talking about this station. It could be destroyed for all I know. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's one of those, you know, I kind of... It's tough to say. Like that's what Star Trek's gotten itself into, just with regards to having both prequels, sequels. Yeah, I guess if you want to consider that with uh, the timelines of say Discovery versus Strange New Worlds, and then we've got you know Picard, on which I would consider to be present day. It's unclear when exactly I guess Prodigy fits into the timeline. I, I'm I'm thinking it is. Uh, maybe 10 years before Picard. And then we know that, uh, that Lower Decks is about 20 years before Star Trek Picard. So you've got all these timelines. You've got five series with five different timelines. And it's just, it seems a little messy, but it also interferes with whatever stakes that they're trying to drive because you kind of understand, like, you're not going to destroy the universe because you've got so many other shows going on. So why are you making it life or death every single season where, or not even life or death, but like the destruction of the universe as we know it every single season? Yeah, and that's a new problem for the franchise. That's not something they were running into in the past. That's entirely yeah. created within this uh, Kurtzman factory of Star Trek. And... You hope they'd smarten up, but they just keep going back to it. A couple bullet points I wanted to uh, get to, but we keep saying that Europa iconography, you know, like on buses or even on Q's jacket, you know, I, I guess it's alluding to some sort of space flight, you know, potential. I wonder if the catastrophic event might have to do with something with early first contact with some other species, which is why this confederation is so xenophobic. I mean, that's something to consider I, I don't know do you have any speculation on what this catastrophic event might even entail i think i do 
um, Assignment Earth. It's about another launch, and Gary Seven is the only one that can stop this whole problem. If we can get him, you know, crawling up uh, the side of a rocket, you know, that would be amazing. Just a la Batman and Robin, you know, whenever they're crawling up the, the side of a, uh, a building. Who's the celebrity peeking out from the rocket while, they're, uh, while he's walking up? It's got to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, 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 would it be cool if the Traveler just happened to be the... Uh, the watcher or uh, or the, the traveler is involved with this somehow well he would fit well his power set fits well within these other um alien species we're dealing with so that would be okay and just sorry just touching back to the europa thing which i kind of dismissed with an assignment earth reference but like that would be very star trekky to tie it to something to do with a space flight situation because you know there's been so much back and forth about the future of you know space travel in our modern day so Star Trek is all about exploring the unknown, so that would actually be very appropriate for the show to tie back to that. You know, fingers crossed. I actually think that could be done in a way that would be quite inspirational. Yeah. Um, the thing that I was kind of disappointed by is we didn't have, like, a Q or Guinan encounter at all in this episode. I don't know if young Guinan's coming back again, but if she does, I think she needs to you know, talk to Q or something, because we know that there is a history between those two, so it'd be kind of interesting if this is how their history was kind of established with each other. Because I don't think that Q's perception of reality or is necessarily linear, even though it's very clear at this moment he's like lost a step and uh, there's something wrong with him. But I think this could totally be kind of their origin story, which would be a, a little fun. Um, the other thing that, that I'm curious about, and which is very unclear to me, is like, so Seven and Raffi ended up like kind of tracing where Rios's combat signal was. Did did they make it clear? Did they pick up his comm badge at the clinic and, and grab it? Or I I I don't recall. Did did anything jump out to you? I was a little confused about this myself. Yeah, because it seems like something they like that was the whole point of them going to the clinic, or at least tracking down his signal. And they can't leave technology just hanging around like that. Um, you could get another uh, Captain Braxton situation and. Uh, Harry, uh, uh, or not, uh, Ed Be Beagley Jr. could uh, return once again as a villain, so I don't know. The return of Starling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had something I was very confused about, and, you know, people, I'm an idiot, so if this, you know, just flown past me, that's fine, but, like, maybe you can explain it to me, Tyler. What is, okay, the characters we're seeing on the show right now, what bodies are they in? Right, okay. I Like, I... <laughs> I know what you're saying that in like, was it just their consciousness that was transferred uh -huh. over or was it their physical bodies that then replaced the bodies that exist here? Because Annika, Annika lost her eyepiece, yeah. right? So like, that's where I'm getting really confused. So I believe it's their consciousness, which was transferred over. And that's why they had to kind of, or they wanted to jump through hoops as to why this Picard would also have a synthetic body, which that just made me roll my eyes. Okay. Because, like, I feel like there's a real easy out there um, for getting Elnor back. And that, uh, it's, yeah, his consciousness still exists in the unaltered timeline. And as long as you resolve that, then maybe his body from the altered timeline is kaput, but his consciousness still exists once they fix the problem. I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, now that we've been able to kind of talk it out, I, yes, I, I, I totally agree. I, I figured they're going to bring Elnor back some way, somehow, no matter what. But I, I, this makes way more sense to me now. And so I would assume then by the end of the season when they go back, Seven will have her eyepiece again? Yeah. You know, I wonder if the, they could have felt more confident knowing that just like maybe there's a scar that they have on like their, I don't know, their kneecaps that is now gone because they're in this altered timeline? Or, or actually, it's such a brutal timeline. Maybe there are new scars on their bodies that they never had before that they're now noticing, and that tells them that it's their consciousness has been transferred, not their physical forms. Yeah, like, I feel like they didn't do a great job explaining that to the audience, what the actual transfer was. And I, I think in this episode, like, Rios even did, like, a hand wave about it. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, don't hand wave that. I think the audience kind of needs to know this. Well, one thing I noticed um, is a lot of people were wondering 
if the rest of the fleet, the armada that was destroyed, if they all ended up in this altered timeline as well. To me, it um, it, it was clear that they did not. It, it because Q said to Picard in episode two, uh, or. Uh, was at the end of episode one. Anyways, Q says to Picard, I'm going to have some friends for you along the way. I don't think he was referring to everybody in that armada. He was referring to Vedic Baral. He's just referring to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but he, like, he would have been referring, obviously, to the people that we've been following here. I still find it absolutely bizarre. Like, is Soji just gone? Is it just that, you know, sorry, we, we need to make space to cover, you know, Jerry Ryan's salary this season. Um, we've got to cut you loose because... Her one scene in one episode of the first season after her being essentially kind of the um, the driving force, if you could even call it that, uh, in season one, it's just, it's so bizarre to me. It really is. And at this point, all I'm wondering is, because we have potentially the Watcher posing in like the body of Laris, if we could have another Watcher situation where someone's in like, you know, has the um, the appearance of Soji. Like that's at this point, I feel like that's what we're dealing with until they get back yeah. to the, you know, the future. It kind of that would kind of bug me for the same reason. It's it's Laris's form, though, because it's not the Laris character that we've become invested in. It's just the same actress and, and same with Soji. It's it's not the well, I can't say I'm all that invested in Soji's journey, <laughs> but like it. But it, it's again, it's not the same character. It's just the same actress. And I'm just like, OK. Like, I guess if you want to find ways to pay your performers, that that's how you do it. Um, but I'll say this. I'm glad that they're not just trying to jam, like, a, a square peg into a round hole by pumping the show up with all your regulars from last season just because you like them and you want them to have something to do, you know? Uh, they, they excised Narek, they excised Soji so far. Uh, Elnor was gone <laughs> because of a, a shotgun to the uh, the shoulder. You know, it's like, okay, that's fine. And I, I'm totally cool following, like, this more lean crew that we have right now in the year 2024. They took, like, the best characters from last season, and they're like, okay, we're going to focus on them. And I'm enjoying the Rafi 7 dynamic. I'm enjoying whether Agnes is with the Borg Queen or uh, Picard is bouncing off of Guinan or Q or Gerardi. That's all a lot of fun. I think the one kind of left hanging so far, though, is... Uh, Chris, you know, Rios, like, he's just, like, he's not there with any, like, big notable characters. He's there with uh, Dr. Teresa. Uh, he's there with the uh, ice jerk. Uh, that's about it so far in the last two episodes. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that he has more to do as we go forward. I mean, I, I can't imagine this ice story is going to go that many more episodes. So hopefully he contributes something else as we continue on throughout the season but i am also wondering if they just realized when they were constructing their story soji didn't make sense and that maybe season three picard soji plays a much bigger role and they were just like okay that's fine let's make yeah. the most of maybe a character for all we know of the group who's on this season is going to fade into the background for season three because i think they said something along the lines of like not every character from season two is going to be in season three picard so I'm like, that's actually interesting to me, and I don't mean in a way where, boy, I can't wait to see who has a death scene, although uh, Elnor, question mark. Well, yeah. But like, <laughs> um, like I, I don't have a problem with people if they die in a way that's meaningful or interesting. I don't care, though, if they die. Uh, I, I'm okay with like this, the writers taking alternate approach and maybe finding a way to write people off in a graceful way. And for season three, kind of the way they did with this season rebooting the show a little bit and telling a story maybe with Soji, maybe with Elnor, whatever, just going down a different road and using the characters they need versus the ones that they feel they have to use. Do you think a, a death scene um, would be satisfying in any way? Um, can I be honest? There really isn't a good track record in Star Trek period about uh, satisfying deaths, uh, uh, especially among like big characters, main characters, right? Like you got Yar, you've got Kirk, uh, Jadzia, Dax. Uh, you, you, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, Lorca, until they made, made him into like a sexual predator, <laughs> I was liking the guy <laughs> regardless. You, you know, like I, I, what's the best, you know, uh, death scene for a, a character in Star Trek, Cam? Well, I think that's easy. Spock in Star Trek well, Two, yeah, yeah. That, that's the cheat though. Let's let's take that one off the board and just say in the TV shows, 
Um, um, Sam Kirk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kess was dispatched with, but it wasn't like any. It wasn't like she died, but it wasn't satisfying either. You know. No, and like I don't know that I really want to include something like Damar because it's in a finale. Like it's not something where the characters are dealing with the ramifications of that going forward. Um, because like the ones within the series, you've got yeah, like as you said, Tasha Yar, Jadzia. Like none of those were particularly satisfying. Vedic Burial. Vedic Burial. Um, <laughs> Kyle Paka. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, like. Um, boy, who's the uh, oh who's the dude in uh, a friendship one um, on Voyager? Oh, Joe Carey. <laughs> Joe Carey. <laughs> um, Raphael Sparge, uh, aka Mike Jonas. Uh, mm-hmm. Seska, <laughs> like, uh, I guess. Yeah, you know what? That one was pretty good. Um, I'll give points to Voyager on that one. I think they actually wrote out Seska in a pretty yeah. uh, memorable way, but. Yeah, like, I think with the problem with Picard is, too, because it's such a fresh show, like, and I think at least for where we stand, season one was pretty darn frustrating. And season two um, has done some work to um, fix some of the problems of season one. But I don't know that they've yet made one of these new characters so ingrained within what I think of as Star Trek that, like, if they died, I would be particularly moved. I know what you're saying, and in all honesty, uh, their departure would uh, essentially uh, amount to like half of season one of the next generation at this point, right? It's yeah, like you know, seven is the only one that would have an impact, I think, on me. A hundred percent, you know. But honestly, the, okay, <laughs> the the big death we actually forgot about Cam was Picard, Jean Luc Picard. Oh, that's true. Um, the t- the titular character uh, was croaked off at the end of season one. And I did not give one flying uh, you-know-what when that happened, you know? Like, it did nothing for me, uh, no matter all the tears that were shed by Elnor. No, I mean, that's... Well, that was the classic Disney death, and you knew it was coming. Yeah. So they didn't even try to fake you out with that. Um, So, I yeah, zero emotional response for me there. It's just... I don't know that that's a, a strength of Star Trek, is these sort of dramatic deaths... Maybe it's something they could work on and deliver one that really worked at some point in the future, but I don't think it's been the strength of the franchise for sure. Yeah. Oh, you know, I've got it, Cam. The the, the one that's uh, just tugged at my heartstrings more than anything else, it was in the season three finale of Star Trek Discovery. It was when Rin the Andorian was uh, suddenly vaporized by um, uh, Osira. Oh, good old Rin. Yeah. I almost forgot about Rin. The, yeah, uh, that one that just looms over me every day. Yeah. The antenna-free Rin. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking that character was actually going to contribute something and then very quickly being like, nope. Yep. <laughs> it was just like, I kind of hoped he was going to contribute something. And then, as you said, Cam, nope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. Okay, let me ask you this. We are four episodes into season two of Picard. Um, four episodes in to season one of Picard, I'll say this: I was, uh, I was getting a lot more frustrated with season one of Picard because we kept saying, like, after every episode, you within the first four, we're like, okay, now the story is ready to begin. Now the story is ready to begin. Okay, now this, uh, nope, nope, nope. And I feel as if the, the story, we might be frustrated by it, but it, it feels as if we are in the middle of the story. And I, it feels as if we've been there since the end of uh, the first episode, the, the season premiere of season two. So, I, but I don't know, maybe your opinions differ. How do, how do you feel four episodes in here versus season one? I think, and it's so much is kind of messed up in my mind now, the um, memories of watching those episodes at the time versus my takeaway when the season was over. Mm-hmm. And how I look back on those episodes, because now we ridicule absolute candor. But like at the time, we were kind of more like, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in this episode. Like we had a lot of positive things to say about it. And it's more in retrospect, you go like, what was that? Like, why were they wasting our time with that? Especially considering they never made use of Elnor going forward. Like that episode just doesn't make any sense. But at the time, like I was more positive, I think. But where I sit now with Picard season two, 
the complaints I'm making about the show are more in terms of stretching things out, which was a problem on Discovery this past season as well. Not so much in terms of feeling like I'm just kind of stalling in place. Like, I feel like there's momentum in what we're doing. It's just that it feels like it's stretching out the story beats. So I think I'm more positive overall right now in terms of the story they're telling here because it feels like they know kind of what they're doing. If you go back and listen to our podcasts of Picard season one, which I did as I was doing my binge watch of season one, it's fascinating in that uh, we were pretty, like mostly positive on um, the episodes until we got to the last two. And it was very clear where, even though we had been kind of like, um, you know, like pulling on the seams of the episodes as we were getting a little bit more frustrated, we weren't like um, angry at this show and we even would get something like nepenthe you know every once in a while but by the time we got to the last two episodes we were just kind of we were all up frustrated but leading up to that even an episode like stardust city rag which we we really that that must be like kind of the nadir of uh, new star trek for me at least um if you listen to our um review of the episode we're mostly just kind of poking at things like oh so is Echep just done like that now and, and Wait, is Seven like a murderer? We weren't going all out saying this is garbage, like the way that we would willingly do so right now. And I think, as I alluded, like I have sort of a revisionist history sense of my memories of season one Picard, where that memory would probably be altered if the finale had really delivered. But because it didn't, it colored the way I look at those episodes now. And I, I'm just really hoping that with this season, even if I have an episode like Watcher where I go, well, this didn't really move the, you know, the needle much in terms of my enthusiasm, if we have a wrap-up to the season that really does deliver and I walk away going, well, you know, maybe a little stretched out, but I was satisfied with the overall story, then I won't walk away with sort of the revisionist negativity towards the season that I did with Picard Season 1. Yeah, look... I, I think our criticisms are valid, and I know a lot of people are out there saying like, oh, we're just being like um, too negative on something that we shouldn't be thinking about too hard. I think the reason Star Trek has endured is because people have thought about uh, these episodes um, for years and years, and they thought very deeply on them. But a lot of what we're getting in the last two things, there's not that much to think about. You know, they're telling you <laughs> like very straight face, this is what this episode is about. And I'm walking away going like, yeah. Not not a whole lot for me to really add to it at this point. No, and I'm also just wondering how much they dedicate their season to it. Like, is it an overarching element of this whole season they want us to walk away with something for? Uh, like, and actually carry, you know, our memories of this, what this season all meant? Or is it the sort of thing where it's going to be a, you know, crisis over two, maybe three episodes, and then we just move on and leave it behind like that's where i'm more i guess i'm nervous if they dwell and keep it like it is but i'm also nervous they just drop it after three episodes and it felt like artificial drama yeah but even if they do that i'm happy to get out of la by the end of the next episode i just suspect that we might not be getting out of la by the end of episode five and that makes me a little bit fearful of what might unfold like we're just we're going to be getting a very stretched storyline, and we're seeing what's going on with Q. I don't know if that's going to be resolved, and he's suddenly going to be back in, you know, kind of everyday, you know, 24th, or I guess 25th century as of right now this year, because uh, Chris had established that it is year 2400 where he's from. So I don't know. I, I, I'm a little... I'm a little worried, but like I'm, I'm keeping my eyes or I'm keeping my mind open. It, this wasn't a bad episode, but it wasn't a particularly good episode either. No, it's not the sort of episode that leaves you really enthusiastic to jump to the next episode. It makes you feel just more obligated to jump to the next episode. Yeah. Um, Kim, do we want to dive into a little bit of Star Trek news this week, especially when it pertains to uh, the films? Yeah, yeah, this is some very exciting news that we are going to be getting the um, the big drop for Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition in 4K on April 5th, first contact day. I've been waiting for this. I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that uh, Paramount Plus in Canada gets this. But if not, congratulations to all the uh, U.S. listeners who are getting to watch it. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I went and jumped on Paramount Plus, uh, my accounts, and I was scrolling through, and their library when it comes to Star Trek, um, it's the movies, but it's not all of them. And one of them that's not included is the motion picture. And my hope is, the reason it's not on there just yet is because they're holding out to make the director's cut available and that the Canadians will have access to it. Uh, I'm going to do a little uh, experiment as we speak in real time here. I'm going to go onto my Apple TV app, which is a great curator of where you can get uh, movies from different streaming services mm -hmm. or whether it's just available to rent. And uh, so what my Apple TV tells me is that the motion picture, <laughs> only 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but um, so... Oh, interesting. It says it is available on Paramount Plus if I push play. So I'm doing that just to double check because when I was looking this afternoon, it did not appear to be available. Okay, so what it tells me is that Paramount... Okay, yeah, I can confirm. Paramount Plus indeed has the license to the motion picture. It's not caught up with, uh, you know, uh, at least here in Canada, with one of the other streaming providers such as Netflix or, or uh, Crave uh as well so that makes me hopeful that we'll be able to get to watch it on april 5th which uh yeah for us i guess would be on a a tuesday i think i don't know i'll put you on the spot are, are you willing to watch it the night of and then by the time we get to our Picard review in about uh two weeks we can um uh, cover our thoughts on uh, ha having 4k uh the motion picture or are you uh the type that y you want your physical copy before you uh give it a, a whirl I will definitely watch it because Tuesday night is actually the best night for me. That's the last night of my work week, so I have the night off. Um, it's more I, – I, I'll have to do a setup. I'll have to talk to you about the technical um, <laughs> details of getting Paramount Plus on my TV because um, in Canada, um, Paramount Plus is not friendly with Samsung TVs. Oh, no, all you have to do is just uh, stream it onto your TV. Like open the uh, app on your phone. And then you have okay. the option to just stream it directly onto your television. Okay, I don't have the app on my phone, so I'll just obviously have to do that. Yeah. Um, f fair enough. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, unlike the other streaming networks, which are very easy to add to my smart TV, Paramount Plus is not so friendly here in Canada. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, if, I, TV at least. if I could give you advice, avoid using your um, TV apps whenever possible. They just, they're not very good. And that's why whenever I can, I just, uh, I use the app off my phone and use it to uh i i i say stream on your uh, onto the tv that that's not the correct way uh of phrasing it it's more like cast it onto the tv because it's essentially as long as you're connected to the same wi-fi network it's not as if your phone is trying to do like a real-time like transfer um and it's all dependent on like your your phone power or anything like that so that that's my advice to any folks out there that might be uh, curious about um the logistics of casting things from your tv app onto your television television apps generally kind of suck that's just my opinion right okay um so yeah like i will watch it as soon as it drops and i will definitely buy the the uh, you know the physical copy which i think they say is will probably be in september um I'm just really excited to see this thing in 4K. I've seen the director's edition before. I have the old DVD, and this will give me a great excuse to get rid of that DVD because it's not very good quality, but I've hung on to it because it's the only thing I have. Um, and it's a movie that I've been excited to see more and more people be enthusiastic about it over the years. Like, it was pretty maligned when I was a kid, in fact, when I got into the Star Trek movies, which is really where it started. The first advice I was ever given by my friend David was... Don't watch the motion picture, start at two and just keep going and never bother going back to number one. And so it was like, I don't know, like a decade plus before I even bothered watching the motion picture. And I'm happy to see that CBS and, you know, when it existed and Paramount were at a certain point kind of digging into uh, motion picture nostalgia and understanding that that movie actually meant something. And, you know, Creation did a panel on the motion picture in Vegas, like, uh, you know, when we last went there and I guess 2019 so that's exciting and just having this version out there perfect like it kind of just gives that uh, you know moviegoers the ability to watch this perfect version of the movie and you know what it gives it a long legacy in the future yeah i've, I've never seen the director's cuts i am happy to check it out on 4k uh, the, the transfer just looking at the marketing they've done it looks absolutely gorgeous and you uh, can you, you've 
maybe come around on the film over the years. Um, it, it's something, a visual cinematic feast for the eyes that Star Trek really hasn't come close to. You could point to some of the JJ movies uh, in terms of um, kind of the uh, the power of cinema. And I know maybe some your mileage may vary on those depending on um, you know how how you feel about the JJ movie storylines. But in terms of directing. Uh, he and Justin Lin both are, are, are very good directors, and uh, that, that's just a fact. And, and like the other movies, can sometimes look a little bit more pedestrian um, in comparison. So I, I'm pumped for this. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It, it, it should be a lot of fun. And I think I don't know. It should uh, every time I watch the motion picture, it kind of reveals something new to me. I, I'm very excited about what will obviously be revealing lots of new stuff to me with this. Well, and that's something I love about Star Trek and why I was, you know, mentioning that anecdote about the enemy within at the start where I can revisit the motion picture over and over again and find something new. And I think the director's edition actually brings in some deleted scenes that actually flesh out a lot of the thematics of the movie and make it even richer. So I think this is the best thing that could happen to that movie. And, you know, uh, Tyler, you and I watch a lot of movies, uh, sometimes the ones that are um not necessarily succeeding 100% are the ones that are the most interesting because you can really kind of see what they were trying to do and i think the motion picture is a perfect example of that where the visuals are astonishing a lot of the kind of the world building and just the sense of adventure really does kind of grab you that sense of immersion but there's things about it that are clunky that are interesting to look at and say what were they trying to do and maybe find an appreciation in the storytelling that at least, like, they had grand aspirations for this movie. Grand aspirations that I don't think they ever really approached again. Okay, Cam, stop it. I'm not going to buy into your argument that The Tomorrow War was one of the best sci-fi action movies of the past decade. <laughs> I was going to say The Atom Project, but fair enough. Well, okay. Um, yeah, look, uh, Cam, uh, we'll continue on with our uh, Picard uh, journeys uh, moving forward. But until then, I, I guess you can find us on Facebook uh, as well. So, you know, just go to facebook.com slash subspace pod. Next week, we will be covering, of course, episode four, or I should say episode five of Picard. Cam, it's going to be weird to think that we are at the halfway mark uh, by the time we finish up next week's episode. Not only that, but we're getting pretty close to the launch of Strange New Worlds as well. So it's going to be f pretty interesting. And um, the, um, yeah, like it'll be interesting to compare as well. We're going to be watching episode five, which episode five was uh, Stardust City Rag of season one. And just to take the temperature as to where we are at the halfway point of season two versus season one. Well, I remember our reaction after that episode. We're like, okay, now the story is ready to begin. Uh-huh. And soccer balls. <laughs> soccer balls oh and cookies in the mouth kissing cookies <laughs> okay so you can of course find us on the twitter i'm at cam v is in vapors of smoke is what picard and laris turned into at the end of this episode smith you can find me at reporton that's r-e-p-o-r-t-o-n-n as in nude vedic burial <laughs> okay so until next time the arena is closed Transfer complete.